Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome back friday july 28th 2023 i am seth liebson our phone number is 602-508-0960 i've got bill to the north don't i bill there you are and i've got david dull my producer to the west david how you doing all focused and paying attention and absolutely not 100 percent of your attention right where it needs to be live at 305 <laughs> George Will has a column today on North ITs. ITs. George Will has a column today on North Dakota, North Dakota Governor and Presidential Candidate Doug Burgum. The point of the column is to show how serious and smart Governor Burgum is, particularly on economic and fiscal issues. As for the culture issues, George Will writes approvingly, "Quote: If wokeness survives Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's hours, hourly onslaughts." which DeSantis might not survive, talking smack about Bud Light is unpresidential, a President Burgum would not regard fighting it as part of his job description. He would be a presidential rarity, acknowledging the Tenth Amendment. Cultural issues are, he says, irrelevant to presidential duties. Close quote. Cultural issues are, he says, irrelevant to presidential duties. George Will continues... That he and Burgum think that age-inappropriate books at school libraries, uh, school libraries are also not an issue for governors or, for that matter, the federal government. This is an odd thing for George Will or a Republican running for public office to say or believe. It's especially odd for George Will, whose first book was titled Statecraft as Soulcraft and whose epigraph in that book is from Cicero stating, quote, A commonwealth is the property of a people. But a people is not any collection of human beings brought together in any sort of way, but an assemblage of people in large numbers associated in agreement with respect to justice and a partnership for the common good. The first cause of such an association is not so much the weakness of the individual as a certain social spirit which nature has implanted in man, close quote. Of course, as we were reciting only yesterday, the beginning of Political science must begin with the first political scientist, and that was Aristotle. He was the first who, in his book on politics, writes that humans alone are the only beings that have any sense of good and evil or just and unjust. And the association of living beings who have this sense makes a family and a state, which is what constitutes a polis, a city, a political entity. Through reason— And speech, Aristotle tells us how to distinguish the expedient and the inexpedient, and therefore likewise the just and the unjust. Certainly these are matters of soul craft or culture issues, as George Will and Governor Burgum call them. In the very first chapter of that book of George Will's, he writes this, quote, Edmund Burke reminds us that the most important of all revolutions is a revolution in sentiments, manners, and moral opinions. After quoting Burke, Will continues, quote, It will be said instantly and energetically and broadly that sentiments, matters, and moral opinions are not of the government's business. 
Are they not private and properly beyond the legitimate concern of public agencies? Will rhetorically asks and emphatically answers, no, they are not. Kate's, excuse me, Keats said the world is a veil of soul making. I say statecraft is soulcraft. Just as all education is moral education because learning conditions conduct, much legislation is moral legislation because it conditions the action and the thought of the nation in broad and important spheres of life, close quote. So in another callback to yesterday and our highlighting the issue of adolescent sex changes, are these and so many other issues truly to be beyond the purview of the kind of society or civility or political structure we live in? Someone will be operating in the realm of laws to either abuse or heal children, as someone will grasp the legal as well as moral definition of what abuse and healing constitute. Are we simply to abandon that field altogether? Nature, Spinoza tells us, abhors a vacuum, but it is my condition the left thrives on such vacuums, which is why it was so upset with our learning what was going on in the schools and on all these fronts, from sexualization to racialization in the schools, and why their first instinct was to lie about what it was we discovered was going on when we discovered it was going on there. And then after the lies, they defended them, and now they try to mandate them, which is what I call the progressive dialectic. First deny, then admit and justify, and then try and mandate. It seems to me further that while nature abhors a vacuum, we are watching apace the left fill as much of that vacuum as they can with the upsetting of, the taking over of, the attempted conquest of nature itself. This, particularly in the race of sexual realms. How are we to ignore this? If not now, when? If not now, me? It's not just a Talmudic question. It is a question for anyone and everyone who considers himself or herself to be a citizen of a representative or participatory democracy. If cultural issues are irrelevant to presidential politics, as Will and Burgum say, it seems to me almost everything is irrelevant. For how do you even build an economics of liberty, as Will and Burgum seem so sedulous about, if you don't have a people in a polity that respects that economy or the economic rules of life or the law on which economics depend, how do you have free markets at all? We need to be reminded just now that the word economics, by the way, comes from the Greek okonomia, which means the management of a household. Let us try it this way. Where did this notion come from that politics, especially politics from the Republican Party, should restrict itself to merely economic issues or the wholesale farming out of serious moral issues to the states? The first Republican platform stated, quote, resolved that the Constitution confers upon Congress sovereign power over the territories of the United States for their government and that in the exercise of this power, it is both the right and the imperative duty of Congress to prohibit in the territories those twin relics of barbarism, polygamy, and slavery, close quote. It's right there, right after the platform restates the principles and the language from the Declaration of Independence. The party resolved to not only oppose slavery, but also polygamy, calling them twin relics of barbarism, which made all the sense in the world, of course. And as you know, Utah could not be admitted to the Union until it banned polygamy. As for slavery... 
there was, aside from polygamy perhaps, but with a great deal more force and evil, no greater threat to the values of family, human beings downgraded into property, mothers ripped from children, husbands taken from wives if they could marry, and entire parades of horribles to the black family we could spend the whole day describing. In fact, the entire fight between Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, we remember the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? was about whether the federal government could or should have a say on serious moral issues for the whole country, like whether slavery should be left up to individual entities as they became states, or whether there should be a national say-so on whether owning property and human beings was beyond the approach and reach of a national moral consensus. Since, as I assume we still like and revere Abraham Lincoln, our first Republican president, let me quote him a bit. Two years after the new Republican Party was formed and all eyes were on Abraham Lincoln in Illinois, he gave a speech saying this, quote, In the Founders' enlightened belief, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and imbruted by its fellows. They grasped not only the whole race of man then living, but they reached forward and seized upon the farthest posterity. They erected a beacon to guide their children and their children's children and the countless myriads who should inhabit the earth in other ages. Wise statesmen as they were, they knew the tendency of prosperity to breed tyrants, and so they established these great self-evident truths that when in the distant future some man, some faction, some interest should set up the doctrine that none but rich men or none but white men were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, their posterity might look up again to the Declaration of Independence and take courage to renew the battle which their fathers began, so that truth and justice and mercy and all the humane and Christian virtues might not be extinguished from the land, so that no man would hereafter dare to limit and circumscribe the great principles on which the Temple of Liberty was being built." Maybe that's worth quoting to those who say today's Republican Party should cabin cultural issues from our politics. Indeed, in his landmark book, Conscience of a Conservative, which was the prelude to his run for the presidency, Barry Goldwater wrote in chapter one of that book exactly on this point, quote, I have been much concerned that so many people today with conservative instincts feel compelled to apologize for them, or if not apologize directly, to qualify their commitment in a way that amounts to breast-beating. Republican candidates Vice President Nixon has said should be economic conservatives, but conservatives with a heart. President Eisenhower announced during his first term, I am a conservative when it comes to economic problems, but liberal when it comes to human problems. Still other Republican leaders have insisted on calling themselves progressive conservatives. These formulations are tantamount to an admission that conservatism is a narrow, mechanistic economic theory that may work very well as a bookkeeper's guide but cannot be relied upon as a comprehensive political philosophy. This is still Barry Goldwater. He goes on. The same judgment, though, in the form of an attack rather than an admission is advanced by the radical camp. We're liberals, they say, and we liberals are interested in people. Our concern is with human beings, while you conservatives are preoccupied with the preservation of economic privilege and status. Take them a step further, and the liberals will turn the accusations into a class argument. It is the little people that concern us, the liberal will say, not the malefactors of great wealth. 
Such statements from friend and foe alike do great injustice to the conservative point of view. Still Barry Goldwater. He writes, conservatism is not an economic theory, though it has economic implications. The shoe is precisely on the other foot. It is socialism that subordinates all other considerations to man's material well-being. It is conservatism that puts material things in their proper place, that has a structured view of the human being and of human society in which economics plays only a subsidiary role. The root difference between the conservatives and the liberals of today is that conservatives take account of the whole man, while the liberals tend to look only at the material side of man's nature. The conservative believes that man is in part an economic, an animal creature, but that he is also a spiritual creature with spiritual needs and spiritual desires. What is more, these needs and desires reflect the superior side of man's nature and thus take precedence over his economic wants. Conservatism, therefore, looks upon the enhancement of man's spiritual nature as the primary concern of political philosophy. Liberals, on the other hand, in the name of concern for human beings, regard the satisfaction of economic wants as the dominant mission of society. They are, moreover, in a hurry, so that their characteristic approach is to harness the society's political and economic forces into a collective effort to compel progress. In this approach, they fight against nature. Close quote. There's that niggling N word again, isn't there? Barry Goldwater understood it as much as Abraham Lincoln, nature. Someone needs to summon George Will back to his own early writings to remind him of them. And another Republican still held in esteem by all of us, I should think, Ronald Reagan, who often quoted Winston Churchill as saying, quote, The destiny of man is not measured by material computation. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we are spirits, not animals. For there is something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty, close quote. Yes, far from a distraction, far from talking smack, as George Will put these fights, far from them being irrelevant, they are the main sum and substance of who we are, or at least I say who we should be not just as Republicans, not just as conservatives, but as Americans. For that's what's at stake, America, if we abdicate them. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You're liking my music now. We got your attention, huh, David Dahl? You always have my attention. What are you? I, nah, yeah, I saw a moment there. <laughs> there was a moment. I was called out. Who would call you out when we're when we're working here? Hey, I'm working here. Sound like Dustin Hoffman. Hey, I'm, walking I'm walking here. here. Yeah. What uh, What's your political pin say today? I've got a fun one. If you can see it, it's I on can't. the lapel of my white blazer. I can't see it. No. <laughs> it's a It's a Warren pin, but it's actually supposed to look like an orange. A Warren pin. Like a California orange. Does that give any clues? Earl Warren, governor of California. That's right. Yeah, it's supposed to look like a California orange. Ran for vice president. In uh, 48, yep. And was the chief justice of the Supreme Court, thus giving us the Warren Court. Yeah, and this one would have been from... Before 48, I'm guessing. This is from 52. Oh, is it? 52. Okay. So uh, 
Warren was at the convention and wanted the nomination. Yeah. And you know who the head of his delegation was? I bet. I bet. Are the wheels turning? Do you know this story? No, they're not. I don't know the story. That the wheels are turning. I don't know the story. The head of the Warren oh, wait, delegation was wait. one Senator Richard Nixon from California. Is that right? Well, and that would make a sense. Palace revolt, and no. the California delegation went into the Eisenhower camp, bringing him over the top, giving him the nomination, and as a result of his good work for the Ike campaign, Nixon was offered the VP spot. Yeah, interesting. And then Warren was offered the chief justice spot yeah, because he went along, I guess. biggest regrets, so Ike says. Warren was a progressive Republican at best. Yeah, Uh, that's a Republican at best. At best. And uh, I believe the the, uh, architect of the internment program, if I'm not mistaken, the Japanese internment program. I don't know about that. Double check me on that. Probably been like uh, California DA or something. Well, no, no, no. Double check me on that. Double check me on that. That's that's a memory I have that that I think I'm right about. Double check me on that. And of course, you know, uh, didn't Eisenhower say his two greatest regrets? That's that's what I was saying. Earl Warren and William Brennan. Yeah, yeah. Was your Warren court? Almost all the problems we have with the Supreme Court still today. Almost all the problems we have. With the fights over constitu- the Constitution today come from the Warren Court, almost all of them. Um, whether whether we're talking about any of the race issues, whether we're talking any, about any of the abortion and life issues, whether we're talking about any of the Commerce Clause or any of them, uh, the liberalism came from the Warren Court. Let me know if I'm right. We can do it at the break. All right, we'll do it at the break. This is just the weirdest darn story. President Biden is speaking out publicly for the first time about his granddaughter, Navy Joan Roberts, the estranged daughter of his son, Hunter Biden, who he had previously not acknowledged. Well, speaking is liberal use of the word speaking. He sent a written statement to People magazine, which is weird. Here's the statement, quote, Our son Hunter and Navy's mother, London, are working together to foster a relationship that is in the best interest of their daughter, preserving her privacy as much as possible going forward. This is not a political issue. It's a family matter. Jill and I only want what is best for all our grandchildren, including Navy. That's a weird thing to do now and that way. A letter to People magazine of all places, People magazine, when you, it's just weird. And at this point, after insisting that he has only had six grandchildren and he used the number six practically deliberately, maybe I should take the word practically out, that he now does this. I wonder if it's because of Maureen Dowd's column in the New York Times from a few weeks ago. I wonder if it's other things. There's something going on with Hunter and Joe. There's something going on. And I'll tell you what uh, Jonathan Turley thinks of it when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems, enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, which may have led to a Biden presidency, Midas believes your finances will be next. 
Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency used to store wealth throughout history. Hundreds and thousands of you, actually, have trusted the veterans at Midas Gold Group. They're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com. Um, Jonathan Turley. He is the Georgetown law professor, and he weighed in on something that I didn't see coming. There's been this discussion and debate over the last couple of days based on a statement of Kevin McCarthy's raising the possibility of drawing up impeachment, uh, having an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. And Jonathan Turley, who is considered a Democrat, said this. We often talk about the powers of Congress and not its obligations. What is the House supposed to do? You know, you have a president who has clearly lied and lied for years and lied to the American people and lied through his representatives at the White House during his presidency. He obviously did know about these business deals. He had involvement with some of these meetings. There was money that went to China. And then you've got IRS agents saying that the fix was in, that this case was actively managed to avoid serious charges for the president's son. You have millions of dollars moving through a labyrinth of accounts. You have a trusted source saying that there was a bribery allegation. The crime that this is the second one mentioned in the impeachment clause. So what are you supposed to do about that? And the answer is you have to investigate. And an impeachment inquiry gives the House that ability. It doesn't mean they're going to impeach. It means they're taking the responsibility seriously, no matter what the administration may want out of this. The one thing the House cannot allow is for these questions to go unanswered. Interesting from Jonathan Turley, no? That is a good colligation of all the charges that are taking place. And I don't know if you caught the story that when Joe Biden was debating Donald Trump on CNN during the 2020 race, he flatly denied that his son, Hunter, was taking any money from China. He flatly denied it. He said it in the debate. He then accused Donald Trump's family of taking money from China. He said the only people on stage that are taking money and making money off China are the Trumps. So he not only denied it about his family, particularly his son, he alleged that it was true of the Trumps. Well, Hunter Biden said in open court pleadings yesterday that he has taken money from China, and not just from China, but from sources connected to the Communist Party of China, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, over $600,000. That's an other lie Joe Biden told. Or at least Joe Biden being contradicted yet again by the testimony of his own son. Could that have anything to do with what Joe Biden told People magazine today? Are they putting daylight 
between each other? I don't know. Who knows what goes on over there? What I do know is that these house of cards are not holding up very well anymore. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time for very long. And the Bidens are learning that age-old lesson just about right now. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Bill, can you hear me over there far in, in the far precincts to the north? You were the one that brought to our attention that we were running out of names. There were too many names that were sounding too much alike. Jimmy Fela and well, I, I can't even remember some of the other ones. There was a George. Yeah, you're going to come in and help me out with this. Um, there were a whole bunch of them that I'm blanking on right now. Mike Gallagher, congressman, James certainly Comey, Jimmy Fela, James Comer, James, James Comer. What did you have, David? I said James Comey and James Comer. James Comey, yeah, yeah. James Comer. There were a few others. Uh, who was the transition Bud Light person? Uh, yeah. Oh, there's there's actor Dermot Mulroney right. and Dylan McDermott. Right. And we have Dylan Mulvaney. Right, right. So that problem. Subway has a solution that's right up your alley and David's in a way, too. This is incredible. They will give you a free sa- free sandwiches for the rest of your life. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Does Seth care what you have for lunch? If if you will get free Subway sandwiches the rest of your life if you legally change your name to Subway. Oh boy. <laughs> Better than changing it to Jared. You didn't see that. Oh. Right, yeah. You didn't see that one coming though, did you? I did not. That did not occur to me, dude. Yeah, yeah. Would you do that? I mean, you, 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 you say free Trump's healthy. Hmm. Yeah. If, what? What's in a name? Right? Well, I mean, Bill. It's not as if you know. It's not as if you're trading up Gunther or Seth or. Would I be Subway Bill or Bill Subway? I think it has Bill to be Subway, Subway Bill. Uh, okay, first. It's kind name. of a cool name. Sure is. It, I would not. Do it for for Subway, but maybe like for Chipotle or you something. You wouldn't give up a little bit. More yeah. oh, okay, you, know? you want to raise the stakes. Chipotle okay, doll. all right. <laughs> as soon as the Capitol Grill wants me to change my name to Capitol yeah. Grill and give me free steaks for life, okay, I see. Hold out for a better offer. Yeah, hold out for a better. I'm, well, I'm just thinking about the nutritional value of having Subway every day of your life, every meal. Well, you don't like, have to. It's I not. Don't have to. It's not a mandate. It's a lot of carbs, dude. Doing that. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, someone is going to do it. You know that. You know darn well someone's going to do it. Only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. All right. Anything else while we have you here, Bill? It's nice to see you. I wish I learned something this Did week. Did you learn It's anything, nice to Bill? see you, too. Did you learn something this week, David? I, I have learned. So we haven't done this segment in a while. But yeah. you know what I learned, I think, between the last time we did this segment and this current time? What? That we both enjoyed a television show growing up. Do you remember this, our conversation about this? By, a while by back? we both enjoyed a television show growing up. Do you mean the same one, the or same? that we both enjoyed television shows? We enjoyed two or three. Yeah, yeah. Because I think Bill enjoyed two or three himself. <laughs> uh, we both enjoyed Johnny Quest growing up, and you told no, me no, we you didn't. Were, yes, well, that's that was not what I was true. Get into. We did not enjoy <laughs> you told it. Me you were scared of the monsters. Exactly. <laughs> we did not. I did not like the show at all. The intro theme still gives me nightmares. The only great thing about it is that it was played by the Wrecking Crew with Bud Brisbaugh on trumpet. Yeah, it's a great... great the theme song. The, the you want to go out with it? Yeah, I was about to. Were you about to? Already planned. Already <laughs> in the, yeah. I'm sure there's some in the audience that are saying, get there faster. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let me go back to work here. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. 
Maybe black lives matter after all, Steve Hayward writes over at Powerline. Back when black lives matter and its adjunct cause to fund the police got underway back in 2015, critics such as Heather MacDonald, Charles Murray and others predicted that African-Americans would become the principal victims of this defund the police movement. Of course, they were right, but the response was always, shut up, racist. You're not allowed to say this. Yesterday, the Oakland, California chapter of the NAACP released a public letter whose contents are a complete vindication of critics such as MacDonald. It calls for declaring, quote, a state of emergency over rising crime and advocates for hiring more police. The letter commits one heresy after another against the progressive and critical race theory catechism. I've posted the complete letter below, but here are some of the highlights from Steve Hayward. He, he's the one who posted it, and here are some of the highlights. From the NAACP public letter, quote, Oakland residents are sick and tired of our intolerable public safety crisis that overwhelmingly impacts minority communities. Murders, shootings, violent armed robberies, home invasions, car break-ins, sideshows, and highway shootouts have become a pervasive fixture of life in Oakland. We call on all elected leaders to unite and declare a state of emergency and bring together massive resources to address our public safety crisis. African Americans are disproportionately hit the hardest by crime in East Oakland and other parts of the city. This is all the NAACP. Failed leadership, including the movement to defund the police, our district attorney's unwillingness to charge and prosecute people who murder and commit life-threatening serious crimes, and the proliferation of anti-police rhetoric have created a heyday for Oakland criminals. Still reading from the NAACP. Yeah, I need to say that because you might confuse it with a Heather MacDonald Wall Street Journal op-ed. Unfortunately, progressive policies and failed leadership have chased away or delayed significant blue-collar job development in the city, the Port of Oakland, and the former Army base. We also encourage Oakland's white, Asian, and Latino communities to speak out against crime and stop allowing themselves to be shamed into silence. There is nothing compassionate or progressive about allowing criminal behavior to fester and rob Oakland residents of their basic rights to public safety. It is not racist or unkind to want to be safe from crime. Do you realize what a complete, not only complete vindication of the McDonald and our sets of theses are about rising crime in minority communities and really in all communities this letter constitutes? Do you realize how strong that is? We now have a get-out-of-rhetorical-and-political-racist-bigotry-name-calling-jail-free card. Do you realize that? For the next time we want to talk about the problem of defunding the police and the problem of rising crime rates in failed cities like Oakland or other places, and we're called those racial bigot names— All we have to do is say, may I just cite the NAACP of Oakland, please? And in so citing, let me quote, quote, it is not racist or unkind to want to be safe from crime. People should stop allowing themselves to be shamed into silence. The proliferation of anti-police rhetoric has created a heyday for Oakland criminals. 
the movement to defund the police has caused more life-threatening serious crimes. That's a darn strong letter. That's a darn strong admission. It reminds one a little bit of what Irving Kristol said many, many, many years ago about a neoconservative is a liberal who is mugged by reality in the traditional sense of neoconservative, not the sense that people talk about with regard to foreign policy. A neoconservative is a liberal who was mugged by reality. The shame of it is, is it took so long. The shame of it is people who pointed this out, and if they were taken seriously and listened to, would have saved lives and led to the saving of lives. The shame of it is, if they weren't shouted down for political reasons, lives would be saved, and that it's taken so long for the Oakland NAACP to come to this final, ultimate realization. We knew they knew it. Now they're at least able and willing to say it. Put it in your back pocket. Welcome back to the Seth Liebs Show. How do you think the administration is handling the economy? Banks failing, stock market volatility, possible recession coming, inflation. Where do you go to invest? You go to Y-Refi. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back. At any time, your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed rate of return. Why Refi is headquartered here locally. They encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been a few times, and I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you will will see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. I was talking with a group of uh, colleagues earlier today, and um, we were talking about the drug problem in America, the drug crisis in America, which it is, it is a crisis. We are losing more people to drug poisonings now than at any other time. We have more regular use of illegal and dangerous drugs than at any other time. And I've had a couple of guests over, I don't know, the past year talking about a new drug that was being found on the streets, particularly in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Oregon, and California, called xylazine, sometimes colloquially referred to as TRANQ, T-R-A-N-Q, because it's a horse tranquilizer. And we said, you know, if you think fentanyl's as bad as it gets, as Shakespeare says, you can't say it's the worst if you can say this is the worst. Watch out for TRANQ. Watch out for TRANQ. And I just got numbers from uh, Drug Free America Foundation. You know how many people dro- died from 
trank poisonings last year, xylazine poisonings last year. I would have I would have guessed just based on the just based on the on the abstemious and little reporting on it. I would have guessed maybe fifteen hundred people, thirty four hundred people died from trank poisoning last year. Thirty four hundred. Do you realize that that's about three times the number of all children who died from COVID in three years? I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. 